Thank you again for coming to this and uh, allowing me to speak to you on this. I was getting hot, so I asked Ben, I said, can I take my jacket off, you know? And he said, yes. And then in Q&A, I can roll my sleeves up, so <laughs> kind of do a, yeah, Mr. Rogers kind of transition here, so. Um, okay, so third lecture is I want to uh, talk about the eight constructions. All right, so now we'll get into the Pistis Christu debate uh, proper. And um, <clears throat> uh, what I want to do is I want to especially engage with the arguments of Richard Hayes. And uh, so, in one reviewer of my book said, you know, people might be disappointed that I'm interacting with Hayes because so much has been written after Hayes. But I have read most of what's been written after Hayes, and I do interact with it a bit, but the reason I want to interact with Hayes is because I do think it's the best argument, and I think it's the one that has really opened up the doors uh, for, this, uh, for this new translation of these phrases. So um, uh, we'll be looking at, I mentioned there's eight phrases in Paul, and these are the eight phrases, if you, if, you know, you dust off your Greek a little bit, and... Uh, uh, notice how they're all in prepositional phrases, as I mentioned, uh, indicating the means by which uh, one is justified or saved. So through faith of Jesus Christ, by faith of Jesus, Romans 3.26, through faith of Jesus Christ, Galatians 2.16a, by faith of Christ, Galatians 2.16c, by faith which is of the Son of God, Galatians 2.20, through uh, the faith of him, uh, Ephesians 3.12, and then through faith of Christ in Philippians 3.9. So those are the six phrases that we're going to look at. And I did want to warn you that uh, we'll get into the weeds a little bit for part of this, and it's really hard to communicate like a, a careful exegetical argument in this kind of a format. So, you know, as I mentioned in the beginning, this, you had the opportunity to skip out on this lecture. Uh, and if you, if you want to sleep, I, you know, I teach undergrads most of the time. So I am pretty used to people sleeping through my lectures, and I, uh, I will not be offended uh, at all. So uh, if you stick through to the end, though, I will try to spend the last 15 minutes or so on uh, theological pastoral implications, and then we can roll that over into the Q&A. <clears throat> Pardon me. So I wanted to start with the, uh, the history of the translation of these phrases, and uh, start with the ancient version. So Christianity from the beginning was a missionary religion, right? And so what, what happened? You know, they went to different, they took the gospel all over to different people and they had to translate the Bible, right? So they made uh, uh, ain't the ancient, main ancient versions uh, of the Bible are in Latin um, and then in Syriac, which is basically Aramaic, and then Coptic, which is basically Egyptian, uh, and in, in all of these translations, um, the eight phrases are just translated literally with a genitive. Uh, so it's just like the Greek. It, 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 it indicates um, it, it's technically ambiguous. You know, it could be faith in Christ or the faithfulness of Christ. It's interesting if you read the translations of these versions, because yeah, we, we, we have these, we have these, we have the Latin, Syriac, and Coptic, um, uh, but then we also have translations of the Latin, Syriac, and Coptic into English. And if you read those translations before Hayes, they all said faith in Christ. And then after Hayes, you start getting like, you know, 
is it faith in or is it faithfulness of? You know, so it's interesting. So really, the ancient versions can't solve it for us. Um, we have to go to the commentary or to the ancient commentaries, and we don't have that much in terms of uh, ancient commentaries on these texts. Um, and, and, um, but we do have we do have some. We have comments by Origen, uh, uh, by uh, Chrysostom, by Jerome, and then by Augustine. And uh, all of these, if you go look at the comments, you can, you can read my book on this. But all of these, all of these. Uh, commentators clearly did not take it to mean the faithfulness of Christ, uh, but took it, took it to mean faith in Christ. Uh, there's been a recent argument that, it, that some of them mean like the faith of Christ, uh, but I think I can clearly say that, uh, that, that they did not take it to mean faith, uh, the faithfulness of Christ. The only one of these that reflected on the option was Augustine in his book on the letter and the spirit. And he says, of Romans 3.22, he says, I'm just going to quote him here. He says, Paul advances a step further and adds, but the, and adds, but righteousness of God by faith of Jesus Christ. That is, by the faith wherewith one believes in Christ. For just as there is not meant the faith which, with, with, with which Christ himself believes, so also there is not meant the righteousness whereby God himself is righteous. Both, no doubt, are ours, but they are called gods in Christ because it is by their bounty that these gifts are bestowed on us. And I'm not, I don't know that I agree with all of his interpretation here. It's very Augustinian. It's very the gift of God's grace of, of his bounty. But, um, but he, the interesting thing is that he reflects on, could it mean the faith of Christ himself? And he says, no, it clearly means faith in Christ. Um, so uh, I want to turn then to the modern versions, translations of the Bible, and so uh, and 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 this all came about at the Reformation, right? You have the ancient translations of the Bible, and then basically the church is using Greek and Latin uh, through the Middle Ages, and then in uh, the modern period uh, with the Reformation, you get the push to translate the Bible into into modern languages. And of course, the one who first does it is Luther. Uh, and um, Luther is apparently the first to translate the phrase faith of Christ with a, um, he translates it with the German preposition on, clearly indicating Christ as the object of faith. Uh, the first to translate the Greek New Testament into English, anyone know? Tyndale, yeah. Uh, and Tyndale, Five of the eight phrases he renders literally faith of Christ, and then three of them he uses the preposition in or on. So it shows you the way he's thinking, you know. Um, the King James uh, version is, uh, the King James version, it takes over a lot of Tyndale's translation, but interestingly, they translate all eight phrases just literally with of. Uh, but then the revised version, which was made in the end of the 19th century, translates them all within or on. And um, I, I wonder, is that, is that a change in English usage? That, uh, that when the King James was made, faith of Christ would sound like faith in Christ? And, and clearly that's the way it was taken. If you read like the Westminster Confession or something, you, you can see they're appealing to these verses that way. But in the modern period, you know, if you say faith of Christ, it doesn't sound like faith in Christ. You know, it sounds like it's Christ's faith. 
Um, but so I wonder if there's a change in English usage there. So, um, so I would argue, at least in the history of translation, you don't really see these phrases being taken. There's not really a debate uh, that they're just taken to mean Christ is the object of our faith. Where then do you get the idea that Christ may be the subject of faith in these? Well, you do have a few people here and there uh, in like the uh, 18th and 19th century suggesting it. Um, sometimes it would be by... Um, more liberal-leaning theologians who would tend to present Christ as not as like the vicarious atonement for our sins, but as the example of faith that we would follow. So you, you see kind of an appeal to the ambiguity of faith of Christ to uh, be, uh, be used that way. I do want to say that Richard Hayes explicitly rejects this liberal like interpretation of the phrases. Uh, uh, but... Um, so you get a few hints here and there. Uh, one of the more famous persons to suggest it is Karl Barth wrote a, a commentary on Romans that was very influential. He, um, Barth was a big cr critic of liberal theology, and he kind of went back to the text. And Barth, in his early versions, he, he suggests this means like the faithfulness of God in Christ or something. And then he actually kind of walks back on it in his later translations. So, but really, I think that it's the case that you don't see people widely accepting the idea that, that, that these could be translated the faithfulness of Christ until Richard Hayes' dissertation. I think that's when like, kind of it, the floodgates are opened up. People see, oh, maybe this is right. It's a real option. And then you have just, and now it's almost like entrenched, like trench warfare, you know, uh, with, uh, with people on different sides. So I, I do think Hayes' dissertation is kind of like the, the, the change point where people consider this as a real option. I would also mention that it tends to be North American scholars who consider this as an option. There are some British scholars who consider it as an option. For the most part, you know, a lot of New Testament studies is done in English and German. And for the most part, uh, German scholars have not been convinced of this at all, barely even discuss it in the commentaries. Uh, and, you know, you could say that's because they're biased because they're Lutheranism, you know. Um, but it, is, it does tend to be an English discussion, and it tends to be a specifically a North American discussion, um, which is one reason I thought, well, this is, I'm, an, I'm a North American, you know, so maybe this would be a good thing that, uh, to, to address. So, uh, okay, so what I want to do then is, uh, because I, I view Hayes' uh, dissertation as so fundamental, I want to try to interact a bit with Hayes' uh, dissertation. And the way I'm going to do it is I'm going to just walk through the, all the, the eight phrases. And, um, uh, and I'm just, I, I want to say I'm not going to do it justice because uh, this really was a brilliant dissertation, and uh, it is carefully argued uh, he has characteristic caution in everything that he says. Uh, it's, um, but uh, I, it's just hard to do that justice in this format, I think. But you could read my book and I interact a little more deeply with it. Notice that I've titled this uh, Hayes' Christological View of Pistis, because remember, his concern was not just with the phrase uh, Pistis Christu, but actually with the word Pistis itself, that he thought often in Paul it just meant it referred to the cross and not to our faith. But I'm going to walk through the, the texts uh, with the Pistis Christu constructions. So we'll start in Galatians 2.16. And I guess one thing to know 
is that Hayes' dissertation really was on Galatians. Uh, and four of the eight Pistis Christi constructions are in Galatians. So Galatians is kind of the ground zero uh, of the Pistis Christi debate. And um, Lou Martin, the, the father of the apocalyptic school, wrote a commentary on Galatians. It's all, it's all surrounding Galatians. So let's turn to Galatians 2.16. And um, uh, we'll look at... Uh, I'll read this, and when I'm, I'm reading from the ESV, but I'm going to purposely read the phrases literally uh, so that I'm not, like, biasing it, all right, in a way, all right? So start in verse 15. We ourselves are Jews by birth and not Gentile sinners, yet we know that a person is not justified by works of the law, but through faith of Jesus Christ. So we also have believed in Christ Jesus in order to be justified by faith of Christ and not by works of the law, because by works of the law, no one will be justified. This is a key text on justification by faith. And there's two of the Pistis Christu phrases. Uh, and so I think it's very important. The classic argument for, um, for the faith in Christ view uh, is, uh, the, the classic argument is that in the middle of this verse, Paul says, we also have believed in Christ Jesus. So if there's, you know, two phrases, you're not sure how to translate them. Well, the context, he clearly says, we have believed in Christ Jesus. So clearly he means, when he says by faith of Christ, he means by faith in Christ, because he says in the middle. And um, older commentaries, like Burton's commentary and the ICC, will just state that and say, it's a done deal. You know, it, 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 clearly, uh, it clearly means faith in Christ, and it determines everything. Hayes, though, says, Hayes questions whether uh, we've too quickly, you know, made that decision. And he, he basically says, this statement is so terse, it's so, like, epigrammatic that we need to see how it's unfolded in Galatians 3 and 4. And as we see it unfolded, it really refers, it doesn't refer to our faith experience, but it refers to the, the story of Christ, the gospel of Christ. And, and um, so, in some ways, he kind of sidesteps. Uh, the argument and says, well, let's wait on that and, and, and move on. Another argument Hayes makes in this verse is he says, uh, why would Paul change the grammatical construction if he didn't mean a change in meaning? Like we have believed in Jesus Christ is the verb believed with Christ as the object. Why would he say, use the noun with the genitive Christ? And so he, he assumes a change in grammar as a change in meaning. Um, and one thing I try to show in my book is you could look at other places in Paul where he makes similar grammatical changes without a change in meaning. So a change in grammar doesn't necessarily mean a change in meaning. I would say, too, that I think this is, it's an old, well-worn argument that the two phrases are determined by the phrase in the middle, but it's a good argument. And it's, uh, it's not one that should be discarded uh, easily, and I do think it's sidestepped a little too quickly. That's Galatians 2.16. Uh, let's move to Galatians 2.20. Uh, and here Paul says, I have, been, I have been crucified with Christ. It is no longer I who lives, but Christ lives in me. And the life which I now live in the flesh, I live by faith. And I'm going to translate the Greek literally, by faith, which is of the Son of God, who loved me and gave himself for me. Very famous verse. One thing Hayes does with this verse, if you could keep your finger here and turn to Romans 5.15,
Um, Romans 5.15 says, The free gift is not like the trespass, for if many died through the one man's trespass, much more have the grace of God and the free gift by the, here's the key phrase, grace and literally, which is of the one man, Jesus Christ. And there, clearly, Christ is um, the one who gives the grace. And so, very similar construction. And so, Hayes says, well, faith which is of the Son of God, it's Christ's faith, similar construction, you know. And I would just say, it's different context. It's, you know, clearly Christ can't be the object of grace, but he can be the object of faith. Um, You know, none of these arguments are ever like, you know, (laughs) it dropped dead, but... So back to Galatians 2.20, another argument that Hayes makes is that Paul says, I've been crucified with Christ and it's no longer I who lives. So Paul says the focus is that Paul is not the one doing anything anymore. He's not the acting subject, right? I don't live anymore. Christ lives in me, you know? So wouldn't it make sense then? Like the faith is actually the faith of Christ, you know, that's being lived in me. Christ is the acting subject. On that, I would push back and say, but Paul does actually say in in the middle of the verse, he says, and the life which I now live. So he does say, I live, right? He says, I don't live, but he also says, I live, (laughs) you know? So we just can't absolutize that. Um, And then interestingly, um, one argument Hayes makes on Galatians 2.20, he says, like, the whole point of Galatians... um, as he says, is, is an unrelenting emphasis on the priority of Christ's or God's willing and doing over against any human will or action. You can see the theological argument there. Like the whole emphasis of Galatians is it's all of God and Christ and not by anything we do, including our faith. And there I would just say that's clearly not the case because of verse 17. Paul speaks of our endeavor to be justified by Christ. So, and that's clearly like a human acting subject. So I just don't think it's true that Galatians emphasizes divine action over and against any kind of human action. Certainly, Paul is pushing back against works of the law and circumcision in particular. Um, but I don't think he's, he's, he's pushing up against any human action. So that's Galatians 2.20. I, I mean, you know, I, uh, I'm... I, you already know where I stand on this, okay? All right, but um, I, I appreciate Luther's Luther's uh, interpretation better. Here's what Luther says about Galatians 2:20. He says, "Here you have the true meaning of justification described, together with an example of the certainty of faith. I live by faith in the Son of God, who loved me and gave Himself for me. Anyone who could say these words with Paul in a certain and constant faith would be truly blessed." Let's look at Galatians 3:22. Uh, so this is where, this, this is the verse where the title of Hayes' book comes from, uh, by uh, faith of Jesus Christ. And, and he makes a very interesting argument. Um, he begins by looking at Galatians 3, 2, and 5, where in both of those verses, Paul, the ESV translates it. Um, Paul talks about, um, he says, did you receive the spirit by works of the law or by the hearing of faith? And Hayes says, we've mistranslated that. And he says, we should translate that. Um, the report of the faith, that it's actually referring to the gospel of Christ itself. And it could mean that. Um, commentators disagree. Then, then Hayes looks at, at, at uh, Galatians 3.11, where it says, where Paul says, it's evident 
that no one is justified before God by the law for the righteous shall live by faith. And Hayes asks, but who's the righteous one? And, and it is interesting. The righteous one is a title for the Messiah in Scripture. Uh, you can see that in Acts. You can see it in Isaiah 53. And Paul says it's Christ himself. He's the righteous one. And what did Paul preach? That he was risen from the dead, that he lives by his own faith. You know, So uh, he interprets it that way. Um, and then he gets to Galatians 3.22 and uh, points out a number of issues. But um, in Galatians 3.22, it says that Scripture imprisoned everything under sin so that the promise by faith in Jesus Christ, sorry, I should do it literally, the promise by faith of Jesus Christ might be given to those who believe. One thing Hayes points out, and this is a very common argument, um, is that notice how Paul says, by faith of Jesus Christ, to those who believe. If he, why would he have to say to those who believe if faith of Jesus Christ meant our faith? That it, it's redundant. And, and so a very common argument is that it's redundant. Uh, and, and so therefore, we should see by faith of Jesus Christ referring to Christ's faith to those who believe referring to our answering faith. Uh, so that, that's a common argument that, that Hayes makes. One interesting argument that Hayes makes uh, of this verse, you know, the phrase is by faith of Jesus Christ. He points out in Galatians how it's, in Galatians 4.16, it says, it speaks of um, uh, the inheritance coming by the faith of Abraham, and Abraham's clearly the subject of faith. And then we walk in the footsteps of Abraham's faith. And Paul says, Paul, sorry, Hayes says, Paul's making a similar argument here. Just as we walk in the footsteps of Abraham's faith, so we walk in the footsteps of Christ's faith. And, uh, and he points out kind of the parallels. Um, uh, I was talking with one of you about this earlier. I can't remember who. But um, the problem with that argument, in my view, is in Romans 4, Paul clearly states unambiguously that we walk in the footsteps of Abraham's faith. But there's no place where he ever states unambiguously that we follow in the footsteps of Christ's faith. It's entirely read out of these disputed phrases. And it's very common in the literature to hear people say that. But Paul never really says it explicitly. Uh, it's so, uh, so that's, you know, a question mark. So that's uh, Galatians 2.16, Um Hayes does deal with Romans uh, in, in his dissertation as well because uh, there's two occurrences occur in that paragraph in Romans 3, 21 and 25. Uh, 21, sorry, 3, 21 to 26. So why don't we turn there and take a look at it? I warned you we'd get into the weeds a little bit here, right? So, uh, so as I said before, this is a very important paragraph in Paul's argument to the uh, Paul's letter to the Romans and in his argument in the letter. Um, and in this, in this paragraph, Hayes has a couple of different arguments. Um, one argument that he makes is he says, he acknowledges that in Galatians 2.16b, Paul clearly speaks of faith, believing in Christ Jesus. But he says in Romans, Paul never speaks about believing in Christ, that faith is always oriented toward God. I think I've shown earlier, Romans 9.33, Romans 10.13, that's not true. Uh, and others have pointed that out too, that Paul does speak about faith in Christ in Romans, clearly. Um, another argument that Hayes notes is, and this is an interesting argument, I think. He, he notes in, in Romans 3.3, 3, Paul speaks of the faithfulness of God, the pistis theu. And Romans 4.16, Paul speaks of the faith of Abraham, the pistis Abraham. 
God is the subject of faithfulness in Romans 3.3. Abraham is the subject of faith in Romans 4.16. Wouldn't it make sense that in the middle, when Paul talks about the pistis Jesu Christu, the faith of Christ, that Christ would be the subject of faith? You know, so uh, that's another argument that he makes. Um, he, uh, in Romans 3.22, Hayes also points to the redundancy. Look at Romans 3.22. It says, the righteousness of God through faith in Jesus Christ for all who believe. But why would you need to add for all who believe? If, it already, if he already said by faith, you know, and, and Hayes says, well, clearly it means something else. It means by the faithfulness of Christ and then for all who believe, that is our answering faith or faithfulness. Uh, so those are some of the arguments that he makes. Um, uh, one, one argument he makes, and, and this has been repeated, is that, you know, Paul says the righteousness of God is revealed by faith. But people say, well, how could that be possible? How could our faith reveal the righteousness of God? And, um, and here I think the answer is complex. I do think Paul, like in verse 21, Romans 3.21, he says, now the righteousness of God has been manifested apart from the law. I think he's talking about the cross there, that it has been accomplished in the cross. But then in verse 22, I think he moves to the application, right? When are people justified? It's when they believe, right? And, then, and, and so uh, I do think you see kind of this accomplishment and application language um, in justification. So uh, these are some arguments that Hayes makes. Um, uh, two other texts, you know, we've gone through six of the eight. Uh, two other texts are just kind of more ancillary. Uh, Ephesians 3.12, we could look at. Um, This text has not factored in prominently because many New Testament scholars question whether Paul wrote Ephesians. Um, I do think Paul wrote Ephesians. I think Hayes thinks Paul wrote Ephesians. But uh, Ephesians 3.12 says, um, he, verse 11, this was a, a, in accordance to the eternal purpose that has been realized in Christ Jesus our Lord, in whom we have boldness and access with confidence through literally the faith of him. And, um, and here Hayes argues that um, the, the construction, the faith of him, is much more naturally rendered his faithfulness. Actually, if I just saw this phrase in Greek, like, randomly, I would agree. I would probably render that his faithfulness. Um, uh, but I've read all of Paul's letters, you know, and I kind of see what he's normally saying. And through faith in him is a legitimate option. And, and I just think that's more likely. But uh, not satisfying, is it, when, like, academics do those kinds of things? You know, eh, it could be this, it could be that, you know. All right. Um, one interesting thing that Hayes says about this, he says, in Romans 5, Paul talks about Christ's obedience for our justification. In Ephesians 3, he talks about Christ's faithfulness for our justification. And, and, and that, that parallel is often used. One other text I want to mention, it's Philippians 3.9. And uh, this is the one text, for some reason, Hayes didn't address in his dissertation. And interestingly, it's almost never addressed in the Pistis Christi debate. It's just kind of like, oh, yeah, there's a Philippians 3.9. Forgot about that one. And I think it shows how central Hayes' argument is, uh, that it's really influenced everyone. But uh, my favorite article on Philippians 3.9 on this is uh, by Veronica Kapersky. And you, you could read that article. Um, but um, 
she argues that it means faith in Christ. But here, it's a famous text. I'll start in verse 8. Indeed, I count everything as lost because of the surpassing worth of knowing Christ Jesus, my Lord. For his sake, I've suffered the loss of all things and count them as rubbish in order that I may gain Christ and be found in him, not having a righteousness of my own that comes from the law, but that which comes through faith of Christ, the righteousness from God that depends on faith. And here I would just argue, and this comes from that article I mentioned, almost everyone agrees that when Paul says that depends on faith, it refers to Paul's faith. And so it just makes sense then in context that he's talking about his own faith in Christ. One interesting thing about this passage is how autobiographical it is. And Galatians 2 is very similar, that when Paul talks about justification, it's like the experience of justification by faith and not just, you know, the argument. And actually, Jay, this is incidental, but J.I. Packer has a really good article on um, how the reformers not only like discovered justification by faith alone, but they experienced it and, the, and the, how that fed into like their teaching and the Reformation. I highly recommend it. It's somewhere online for free, but I can't think of the title of it. So those are the texts. Um, oh, sorry, I didn't put Philippians 3.9. Oh, I didn't put either of them up there. Sorry about that. Oh, well. PowerPoint fail. Yeah, I've heard it said, uh, all power corrupts and PowerPoint corrupts absolutely. So, okay. Uh, one other thing that I want to mention is, uh, uh, I think very central to Hayes' argument is an appeal to ambiguity. You see it time and time again. So for example, in Galatians 3.11, I, I guess we're in Philippians, but uh, in Galatians 3.11, where, where Paul cites Habakkuk 2.4, it says, the righteous shall live by faith. Hayes considers three options. He says, it could mean our faith. It could mean Christ's faith, the faith of the Messiah. Or it could mean both. Why doesn't he choose option two? <laughs> he chooses option three. He says it's both. I think because, well, I'm not going to give that away yet. <laughs> uh, so there's an appeal to ambiguity. He says it actually means both, all right? Um, look at Galatians 3.24. Um, Paul says, The law was our guardian until Christ came in order that we might be justified by faith. Here's Hayes' comment on that verse. Because the Christian's life is a reenactment of the pattern of faithfulness revealed in Jesus, it is futile to ask in a formulation such as we might be justified by faith, whose faith is meant. It is, of course, the faith of Jesus Christ, but it is also the faith of the Christian. So he, he often appeals to the both-and approach. Now, there's a place for ambiguity in interpretation. I think in John's writings, for example, he often uses ambiguity. Uh, we're translating through 1 John in my elementary Greek class, and I'm just noticing this language from the beginning, and I'm always like, what does that mean? <laughs> and I'm not sure it's always one or the other. Sometimes I do think there's a place for ambiguity. But the question here is, why does Hayes appeal to ambiguity in his interpretation? Is it because the context of Galatians so like demands a both-and approach? And, or is it perhaps that his thesis doesn't settle very well into the context of Galatians? Of course, you know my answer to that, all right? Um, but it, it is interesting. Uh, 
Uh, I would argue that uh, we can actually, we can actually, we don't need to appeal to ambiguity, and that the phrase by faith, which all the eight phrases all say by faith of Christ, is a consistent Pauline, Pauline idiom, and it always refers to our faith. And I say it's a Pauline idiom because it's the phrase by faith occurs about 40 times in Paul's letters. The only other place in ancient Greek literature where it occurs that like that is in Hebrews, Hebrews 11, about 20 times by faith, all right? And, um, and I think that um, if you look at those, I think it's just very easy to consistently say that's by our faith, you know, uh, by our act of faith. Uh, and... Um, and here I would appeal to James Dunn. Here's what James Dunn said in a friendly letter to Richard Hayes. He said, in many ways, the most persuasive argument for Pistis Christu as referring to faith in Christ is that it ensures that Paul's Pistis phrases can and should be taken consistently as referring to the act of believing, of hearing, and responding to the gospel with the commitment to Christ as Lord for which the gospel calls. I think, hey, I think, sorry, Dunn is absolutely right there, that there's a consistency in interpreting these phrases in Paul that I think uh, would lead us to translate, to see this as referring to our faith and to see the genitive as referring to uh, the object of our faith. Um, there's more I could say about that. You can read my book, okay? Um, I, I'd like to get into some of the more implications. Uh, yeah, 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 yeah. It is interesting. I'll just say that last line. It is interesting that over half of these by faith phrases occur in Romans 1 to 5 and Galatians 2 to 5, which are his, Paul's most important discussions of justification by faith. And I would argue that when he uses the Pistis Christi construction, it spells out what he means. It means by faith in Christ. But, but that's the debate. Uh, let me get into just some theological and pastoral significance in uh, the last uh, few minutes here. And... Um, and then, you know, we can, we can uh, spend a few minutes in Q&A. Uh, so first, I just want to talk about faith in Christ. And I think it is correct to say that Christ, in Paul's letters and theology, that Christ is the fundamental object of our faith. This does not, of course, mean that we don't believe in God. <laughs> we believe in the God who raised Christ from the dead, right? And Paul, part of faith believing in Christ is believing that he's the risen Lord, that he uh, is the one true God who saves. Right? So it's complex. But I do think that it is, it is correct to say that Christ is the fundamental object of faith in Paul's letters. And, and when we say that, we, we mean both his person and work. Right? Paul will both say we believe in Christ and he'll say we believe that Christ, that Christ died and was raised from the dead. Uh, I want to ask this question. Does the faithfulness of Christ matter for Paul? Does the faithfulness of Christ matter for Paul? There are two texts where Paul talks about the faithfulness of Christ. Uh, one is in 2 Thessalonians 3. Uh, please turn with me there, 2 Thessalonians 3. <clears throat> uh, many New Testament scholars argue that Paul didn't write 2 Thessalonians, so unfortunately the way it goes in these kinds of debates is that it gets ignored. Uh, often. But why don't we read this text, 2 Thessalonians 3, 1 through 3. Finally, brothers, pray for us that the word of the Lord may speed ahead and be honored as happened among you, that we may be delivered from wicked and evil men, for not all have faith. But the Lord, that is Lord Jesus, the Lord is faithful. 
he will establish you and guard you against the evil one. So I, the faithfulness of Christ does matter for Paul, right, as the object of our faith. Paul says, not all have faith, the opponents, right? But our Lord is faithful. He's going to keep us even from the opponents. And, and, and when Paul appeals to the faithfulness of Christ and the faithfulness of God, he's usually encouraging believers that God will keep us to the end uh, and, and, and so that our faith is worth it, right? Um, and another example is the famous text in, in, um, in 2 Timothy 2, verse 13, and this is one of the trustworthy sayings. In other words, you can take it to the bank. You can believe it, okay? Uh, and 2 Timothy 2.11 says, This saying is trustworthy, for if we have died with him, we will also live with him. If we endure, we will also reign with him. If we deny him, he will also deny us. If we are faithless, he remains faithful, for he cannot deny himself. In context, he's clearly speaking about Christ, the risen Christ. And, and there's two ways you could take this last line. Um, some would say, if we're faithless, he remains faithful to judge us, like Judas, right? Um, uh, talking about apostasy. But most, and I think is correct, he's, I th- is, is that he's encouraging uh, believers who, whose faithfulness breaks, like Peter, right? That, that Christ remains faithful and that we can trust in him even when we're faithless. So... So I think that's interesting. He even contrasts the faithfulness of Christ and our faithfulness. Um, but he's presenting Christ as the object of our faith. And, 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 and when he speaks of the faithfulness of Christ, it's usually that we can trust him to keep us to the end. Um, so I think that, you know, viewing Christ as the object of our faith and, and the gospel, uh, the events that surround Christ as the object of our faith, it should, I hope, keep us from the subjectivism of liberal theology. I mentioned earlier that kind of the heart of liberal theology is this subjectivism, that it's just this feeling of absolute dependence, unconnected from the truth of the gospel, right? And I think it also should um, keep us from revivalism, um, that um, I think revivalism does focus on the subject too much and misses the objective truths of the gospel. And often, and this has been my experience, um, creates doubts and it causes believers to lack assurance when they shouldn't uh, because we're all focused on ourselves and our decision instead of on the truth of the gospel. So I think viewing Christ as the object of our faith should keep us from that subjectivism uh, that, that Hayes is concerned about and that I, I am equally concerned about. Um, all right, the gospel is outside of ourselves in that sense. With that said, I don't think we should overcorrect. Uh, I do think that you know, for, for Paul, we are the acting subjects of faith in Christ. We believe and trust in the gospel um, and that our faith, uh, the Reformed tradition would say our faith is essentially knowledge and assent and trust. And I think that's correct. Uh, um, uh, here, here I wanted to just make a note about the many today who would say that our faith includes in it uh, uh, faithfulness inherently, or allegiance, uh, is the way that Matthew Bates puts it. And Matthew Bates has argued this. Nijay Gupta has argued this recently in his book on faith. And I think what you see in Bates and Gupta is a you is a a, a downplaying of the clear division between faith and works in Paul's theology. 
Like you could look at Romans 4, 4 to 5, where con- Paul contrasts the worker and the believer. And, and I think you have to downplay that and, and, and kind of import works into faith. So I, I would uh, argue that this is wrong, that we shouldn't view faith as including faithfulness. Instead, we should say faithfulness is part of the perseverance of the Christian, the part of the works of the believer, our love and good works. I would say here, too, that I think John Piper's new book on faith is misguided in this, that Piper argues that love for God is inherently a part of faith. Brian and I talked about this earlier, and we might disagree, you know, we can agree. So you can talk to Ryan for the other view, all right? But um, I think what Piper is doing, in my view, is um, importing works into faith. Um, And I do think it's going to create assurance problems. I do think it it is, it unintentionally, it compromises um, justification by faith alone. Um, Certainly not intentionally. Piper would affirm that. Uh, One final thing I want to say about this, about faith in us, is that I do think that there is an individual and a corporate element of faith, um, that, um, you know, faith in terms of the subject is individual, right? We, each of us come to believe uh, by God's grace on our own. But in terms of the object, uh, it is corporate because we all have a common faith, right? And and, uh, Paul talks about the common faith. He says to the Romans, Romans 1.12, he says, we have a common faith, yours and mine, you know? And that, that binds Christians together. I think in assemblies, it binds Christians with all Christians over the world and throughout history. Uh, it's, um, I think it's, in a sense, it's the foundation of our love, right? That, uh, that our love for one another comes from our common, the common object of our faith. Uh, and then the last thing I want to talk about is faith and salvation. And, uh, and here I would say that uh, faith, I think clearly, Paul clearly speaks of faith as a condition of our salvation. You know, I mean, the famous verse is, if you confess with your mouth and believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead, you will be saved. That's if then, right? So, but I think I showed many other places where Paul speaks of faith as a condition of salvation. We are obligated to offer the obedience of faith. That's what the gospel calls us to. And this is what prompts the church to evangelism and missions, right? And so there, there is an obligation um, and an offer for all to believe. Also, I do think that Paul speaks of faith as a cause of our salvation. Uh, that, that's what he means when he says we're justified by faith in Christ. That uh, faith is a cause uh, of, our, of our salvation. Now, um, I don't mean by that that it's the fundamental cause of our salvation. I, I would say it's a proximate cause uh, that, that rests on the more ultimate cause of God's work in Christ, right? Um, the Reformed tradition would, would say it's the instrument. I see Matt saying instrument, but instrument even is a cause, right? Like the instrumental cause of the philosophers. Um, but it's not the ultimate cause, right? Um, and um, so I, I, do, I do think we, that faith is a cause of our salvation and that faith matters. I think Jesus values faith, right? He marvels at faith, that we should call people to faith, that we should... We should seek to grow in our faith. With that said, right, it is not the ultimate cause of our salvation. I think Paul clearly says that um, believers have been granted different measures of faith, Romans 12, um, and, and, and that we are weaker and stronger in faith at different times in our lives, right? And, um, uh, and that ultimately, right, our salvation is, uh, is because of God's work through Christ. Um, but our faith really matters too, you know, so.